Our Father, you are uh, very, very great and your uh, ways are not our ways and your plans are not our plans. And we uh, here uh, below are so uh, distracted and obsessed with things that are uh, in the, the grand scheme of things of no moment at all. And you would lift our eyes and I pray you would uh, work amongst us powerfully this morning. Lift our eyes again to the, the grand scale of your purposes for us. I pray for those who perhaps don't know you yet this morning that you would open their eyes to the beauty and majesty of your plans. And for those of us who know you, would we know you so much better this morning? Would we trust you more deeply, walk more nearly with you, that you might transform us to be just like your son, the Lord Jesus? And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You'll find an outline of where we're going on the, the back of the notice sheet. I hope that'll be helpful for you. And since there are two passages this morning, we are looking at both. You can use that to shove in uh, one of them to keep the page for you, if that's helpful as well. I want you to imagine a, a man, a, a desperate man, a man who's fallen so low that he's taken to living amongst the pigs, eating their swill. Things got so bad that he decides to return home to face the father he has most viciously treated in, in the vain hope that he might give some relief to his present situation. Uh, the man has barely a sliver of a hope, but it's enough for him to set off on a long and dangerous journey home. And Jesus tells that story of the prodigal son in Luke's Gospel to teach us that it is God's habit to accept those who come to the end of their own resources and return to him in repentance. And God is uh, joyfully uh, willing to welcome any of his uh, lost children. But uh, what I want to pick up on this morning is, is the journey home. Uh, because I think it highlights for us a weakness in uh, our own spiritual lives in the church more generally. Uh, consider this, the prodigal son expects to be treated as a slave. You know the story, uh, perhaps, he, he rehearses the words he's going to use to persuade his dad not to kick him out. He certainly doesn't expect the, the, the treatment of sons, and yet we've seen in our series, haven't we, that God has adopted every Christian into his family as his son or daughter. The prodigal expects to be punished because he has been profligate and treated his father terribly. But we have learned that we are justified and sanctified. That, that means that we are right with God, judicially, legally, and that he set us apart to be holy and precious to him. And yet the prodigal makes his astonishing pilgrimage with so little on offer. He endures great hardship to come home with just the faintest hope of being treated well. The faintest flicker of hope is enough to keep him going. And here I think is the challenge for us. As Christians, and I think more generally, we are in the habit of treating the journey as the destination. We look at this world, at our messy, often uncomfortable lives, and we forget that this is the journey and not the destination. We forget to lift our eyes to what is it to come in front of us, to a home where we are guaranteed a very warm welcome. That failure means that we can become obsessed with our circumstances. We don't have any sort of perspective to hold our lives in. Our, our time, and our effort, I wonder your conversations around the dinner table, what do you talk about? Uh, jobs, schools, hobbies, maybe even church. 
all good things, but we give so little time to thinking about home. It's never a good thing, is it, to disobey the commands of Scripture. Uh, But Colossians 3 says this. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. The Apostle Paul says, uh, you're meant to focus your heart and your mind there, not here. We're built for setting our hearts there. And so no wonder if this act of disobedience that we're so often caught up in robs us of comfort and joy in the present, uh, makes godliness so much harder to attain, and makes perseverance harder still. We were thinking last, the last two weeks, weren't we? How is it that we're going to grow in godliness and persevere to the end? And the question really today is, do we want to get to the end? Do we even know where the end is in order to keep going? And what is it that you are teaching your family and friends about that Christianity is about, after all? What, what do I, our preoccupations tell our children really matters in this world? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation itself is longing for the day when Christ returns... That is because the universe has a goal. It has an end point to which everything is heading. A purpose. And when we obsess with this world, when the world itself is is heading somewhere else, we completely miss the point. We don't just cut against the grain of our Christian lives, we cut against the grain of everything. And here's the tragedy. Let me read to you some words from Romans chapter 8. I consider that the present sufferings, our present sufferings, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis has this idea of the new creation as being a heavy place, a weighty place, more substantial than this life. And he's right, isn't he? This is the shadow lands. You know what a shadow is? It's a two-dimensional representation of the real, the real thing. It's grey. It is ephemeral. It is barely even there. And that is what this world is like. But there, there is weighty glory to be revealed in us. It's not worth comparing, says Paul. So far greater is our home than the journey, and yet we obsess with the journey, don't we? We obsess with this world. How pathetic. How tragic. And how dangerous. And this is the, the challenge of the New Testament's uh, idea of the now and the not yet. We have some things, some privileges and joys of being a Christian, and there's a not yet. There's things still to come. Uh, we live now, but so much that is best about being a Christian is still to come in the future. And we need our spiritual eyes to be open so that we can see that and put this world in its proper perspective. If we expect the future to come now, if we expect all the privileges of the future to come now, then we will have no uh, way of coping with suffering when it comes. And we'll give up. But equally, if we don't expect the future to come at all, then when suffering comes, we'll get tired and give up. Uh, We need to live in this age, recognising that there is a next to come that is much, much greater like Richard Baxter, uh, we need to take regular walks in our minds in the new creation. Set our hearts above where Christ is. 
And so my aim this morning is not simply to teach you about our final glorification, although that will be a lesser aim, but I want to give you such a taste of it that you are able to go into this week feeling revived and refreshed and have your heart and mind on things above where Christ is. So much so that you want more of it. You know, you've had that experience where you, you taste honeycomb, you bite into honeycomb, and it's so rich and sweet. You think, you know, I, I'm always sort of half looking out for it in the supermarket. You know, I, I want some more. Do you want some more? I want us to transform how we talk about the gospel. We have a little week of mission events. Perhaps we've been having conversations with our friends about what's so good about Christianity. And we talk about forgiveness of sins, and our friends go, What sins are? What do I care? And we go, I'm not really excited about it, actually. Forgiveness of sins, it's, it's good, it's all right, it's conceptually okay, but I'm not that excited about it. But this is exciting. This is what it's all about. And if we don't talk about this, what are we trying to give people? And so our text this morning is really just one verse in Revelation 21. It's verse 3. Let me read that to you. Look down with me, would you? If you close your Bibles, it's page 1249. Get to the end and flip back a couple of pages and you're there. Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is God speaking. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Among all the glorious words of the last couple of chapters of Revelation, I've come to see that these are the most glorious. And yet I think that naturally they don't strike us as being the most impressive words in in these two chapters, perhaps the least impressive. And so to understand what's going on in, in just that verse there, in John's record of Jesus' revelation to him, we need to come back to the previous passage we had read by Lau. Uh, John 17. Here, uh, John records Jesus' prayer for his church. And uh, I think as we look at that chapter, we're going to get to see something of what's so glorious about uh, Revelation 21, verse 3. So please turn to page 1085. Keep, uh, keep your service sheet in page 1249. We're going to come back there towards the end. But I want us to have a bit of a look first at John uh, chapter 17. I'm really only going to briefly sketch the contours of the passage for us. Uh, there's a huge amount in there, and I don't want to, to get bogged down because we'll miss our purpose here. But then I want to step back and look at one repeated word that comes up again and again and again in our passage, which I think is really important for understanding what's going on in Revelation. Okay. And our first point really is to observe this, uh, the now and not yet of Jesus' glory. Okay, we're talking about our glory we're going to start with the now and not yet of Jesus' glory, verses 1 to 5. You'll have noticed, actually, as it was being read, just how much glory is the big idea of this, uh, this passage. Let me show you there is a now glory of Jesus and a not yet glory of Jesus. Jesus is here praying. It's the very end of his life. It's, it's basically his last act before he's crucified. He's praying for his church, having taught them lots about uh, how to live at, when he's gone away. We know the crucifixion's in mind because verse 1, he says, the hour has come. And in John's Gospel, the hour is always the hour of Jesus' glorification, which is the the hour of Jesus' crucifixion. The point at which Jesus puts on display the power and wisdom of God. There is a now glory of Jesus. Look at verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. What is the job God gave to Jesus to do? Verse 2. Uh, giving eternal life to all those that God chose. We're there back in our first talk, aren't we? Election. 
And what is eternal life, Jesus? Verse 3, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That knowing word is, is, is a personal, intimate relationship word. To know God, to know Jesus, that's life. Jesus came to reveal God to us so that we might believe in him and have eternal life. He does this supremely at the cross, but through the whole of his life and ministry, he shows us what God is like. It is here that God is most glorified. As we see the cross, we see the glory of the Father, his plan, his purpose, his power, and his saving grace. But it's a veiled glory, isn't it? It's a veiled glory. It's a wonderful thing to the church, but perhaps you're somebody who's not a Christian yet this morning, and this idea that the cross is glorious is complete nonsense to you. It's a glory that is veiled. It's visible to the church and invisible to the world. And I wonder, have you ever seen the glory of Jesus at the cross? Jesus has a a, a now glory, but there's a second glory, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. See, there's a glory that Jesus always had from before the beginning of creation, which was hidden when he was on earth and is being revealed again when he goes home to his Father. It's uh, the glory of God. It's God's glory. The the idea of glory is of, of a revelation of the truth of things. And Jesus' glory here is a splendor. It's a radiance of God's purity, power and infinite goodness. So Revelation talks about there not needing to be any sun in the new creation because God's glory is there. It's the glory of uh, staring at the sun. That is Jesus' glory. And so in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah uh, encounters the glory of God and he falls down and says, I'm going to die because I'm a sinner and God is so great. It's the glory, if you know the story of the transfiguration, Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is is transformed before their eyes. They get some glimpse of Jesus' transfiguration glory and Peter starts muttering stupid inane comments because he doesn't know what to do. He's just dumbstruck. There was a brief earthly splendour and there is an eternal, indestructible, divine splendour, a now glory and a not yet glory. Those things are important. And now just look at the end of our passage, verse 24. I want you to see where this passage ends. This is Jesus' prayer for after the work of the church is done. Father, I want those who have, you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me, because you love me before the creation of the world. Okay, two things Jesus prays for his church. Be with me, see my glory. Okay, that's Revelation 21, isn't it? Be with me, see my glory. There is a a future day when we will see the glory of Jesus as he really is. We're not there yet. Now we see as through a glass darkly. But there's a day coming and Jesus is praying for it. So there's a a now and not yet glory of Jesus. Secondly, Jesus' now glory exists in the church. Verses 16 to 23. Jesus revealed God's glory in the world through verse 8. The words you gave me. He, he, he taught what God gave him to teach. God gives Jesus words, he gives them to the world, and his disciples have believed that you sent me. That's they responded to the gospel. They believed the gospel. They've got eternal life. Uh, that is to say, in the words of verse 6, they have obeyed your word, they've kept your word, they, they heard it and have lived in light of it. They trusted the gospel. 
And throughout this prayer, Jesus assumes the sovereign election of his people over and over again. So verse 9, as an example, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So connecting the beginning and end of our series. Jesus, God has chosen his people and now he gives them as a gift to Jesus. And Jesus gives them the word and they respond to the word, they become Christians. Okay. Basically, that's a summary of everything we've learned in the first seven talks of the series. Okay? So if you missed them, you're up to date, it's good. Christians belong to God. They are a gift from God to the Son. And they are, verse 10, have a look, for his glory. Glory has come to me through them. There's a, there's a now glory of Jesus through the church. And that's important because verse 11, I will be in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. In other words, although Jesus has left the world, his glory continues to be in the world, revealed to the world through the church. That's what the church is for. And so... What is it that Jesus then for prays for his church that he's leaving behind to reveal his glory to the Father? What is it that Jesus prays for us? Jesus begins his prayer halfway through verse 11 with, uh, uh, with the words, um, uh, protect them. Holy Father, protect them. It's a command. It's a, it's a request to God. And we see three parts of the prayer. And the first is this. Jesus now glory is seen in unity under fire. Verses 11 to 16. They're under fire just like Jesus. Verse 14. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. Just like Jesus. Verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. God protect them. They're under fire for believing in me. Protect them. Okay, we know that experience. And certainly Christians around the world for, two, for 20 centuries have, have understood that. How are we to be protected under fire? Take a look at verse 11. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. Father, keep them faithful to your name. Names in the Bible mean something more than what we tend to throw them around. We have nicknames and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in the Bible, a name represents the whole person, the truth about a person. So Jesus is saying, keep them united around the truth of God revealed in Jesus. Okay, Jesus reveals God, goes back to heaven. We believe the truth about Jesus. We're, we're Christians. And we are kept in the truth by God's faithfulness as we keep believing the words about Jesus. Jesus reveals God. We're given eternal life by knowing Jesus. We're kept safe by truth about Jesus and unity to one another. Those two things go together. The more, the more we know the truth about Jesus, the more united we become to each other. Okay? That's protection for us. Jesus' now glory is seen in the unity of the church under fire and it's seen in, uh, verses 17 to 19, godliness. The second petition there is in the beginning of verse 17. Have a look. Uh, sanctify them. So protect them, verse 11. Sanctify them, verse 17. We saw two weeks ago, didn't we, that um, this, is, this is a prayer for holiness. A sanctified word is uh, uh, the holy word. And so this prayer is, is directed, uh, verse 11, to the Holy Father, the, the sanctified Father, the set apart from sin, uh, perfectly godly Father. The sanctified one. 
Jesus himself sanctifies himself. Verse 19, for them I sanctify myself. I, I set myself apart from sin to be holy for their sake. We are, uh, Jesus prays for us to be sanctified as he is sanctified, set apart for God, as he is set apart for God, for the sake of the world. Uh, how? How are we to be sanctified? Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Do you see, there's a bit of a theme running through here. Yeah? We're converted by the truth about Jesus that he reveals supremely at the cross. We're kept united and safe by the truth. And now we grow in holiness through the truth about Jesus. And as we look like Jesus in the world, sanctified, holy, united, so he is glorified. The church is the visible body of the invisible Jesus. Okay? What's left of Jesus in the world is the church. And so how glorious is the church? What a glory we have to share in now that we reflect God to the world. We do the job that Jesus did. We show the world what God is like. This is a remarkable thing to say. But there's more to the now glory of Jesus because it's seen, uh, thirdly, in the growth of the church, verses 20 to 23. Verse 20, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus assumes the growth of the church. And he prays for this growing church to be, verse 23, completely united. Why? Verse 23. So that he be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me. See how it works? As the, the more united we are, the more holy we are, the more the world will look on, see the glory of Jesus, and be converted. People come to Christ, the church grows, we grow in unity, we grow in godliness, the world looks on, the world sees the gospel manifested in the life of the church, and so the church keeps growing, and it has done for two millennia. As the message of the church and the life of the church are truly one, so the glory of Jesus is seen in the church, and the church grows. We have glory now as Christians, that through us, through our suffering as the world hates us, through our love and evangelism, Jesus gets glorified and the church grows. I wonder, perhaps you're here as a guest this morning, and you've seen something just a bit different about your friends. About your Christian colleagues and you're just curious what makes them just that little bit different self-sacrificial I think this is why we are still journeying towards our home uh, it would be easy enough for God wouldn't it just to pluck every every new convert out of the world and say come home straight away and he does that from time to time but God uh, patiently allows Christians to exist in the world, to keep showing the glory of God so that other people might hear the gospel and believe and come home. The fact that you haven't been taken home, <coughs> brothers and sisters, means that you have work to do. And when your work is done, then you'll get to go home. Uh, we have a present glory, but even as I've been saying these things, you're probably thinking, yeah, but come on, Ash, you know, our, our glory is not like Jesus' glory. 
Our grasp of truth is not like Jesus' grasp of truth. Our godliness is not like Jesus' godliness. We're marred and distorted by sin. There's all sorts of ways in which the church feels disunited. We're simply not as glorious as we should be. And that provides the context for understanding the not yet glory that is to be ours, brothers and sisters. I want you to see that the key word through our passage is just a little two-letter word. I don't know if you spotted it as Lau was reading. Uh, as I say it, you're going to go, oh yeah, definitely spotted that. It's the word as. Do you see this? I think it's one of the most extraordinary things in the Bible. This chapter is, is absolutely extraordinary. This little word uh, comes up again and again and it explains Revelation 21.3 for us, I think. Right, just look at how Jesus prays. Verse 11. See uh, how the word as uh, works out. Verse 11. Protect them so they may be one as we are one. Verse 16. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Verse 21, all that, uh, uh, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Verse 23, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Do you see? The comparison between us and Jesus is just right through the prayer. Because we are children of God now, we are loved in exactly the same way and to exactly the same degree as the Son of God. More than that, we are to be united in exactly the same way and to exactly the same degree as the Trinity is united. Uh, The burden of this whole book up to this point, I think, in John's Gospel is to show us that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are completely united. They work completely together in love and faithfulness and tender delight in each other. Three persons, one perfect unity in love and purpose. And if uh, the Trinity boggles your mind, come and talk to me afterwards. I'll happily spend some time chatting to you about it. The life of the Godhead is infinite goodness, generosity, love, other person-centeredness. And now look down at verse 21. You'll have missed this, but I'm inclined to think this might be the most extraordinary statement in the Bible. Okay, so really do pay attention. Take a look, verse 21. Jesus prays for us, halfway through the verse. May they, that is the church, also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Just just see that for a moment. There is a perfect unity within the, the Trinity. In the Godhead. There's a a comparable, perfect unity that should exist in the church around the truth of Jesus so that the Godhead is seen reflected in the church. Okay, that's those are the two things you've seen already. Uh, But this verse goes further, doesn't it? It's a prayer that the church would be caught up into the life of the Godhead. To experience with God the life that God has had since the beginning. Does that boggle your mind yet? our problem is that we only see Jesus as through a glass darkly now don't we so we're not perfectly united here and we because our sin remains and therefore our experience of God is commensurably less than what Jesus is praying for here isn't it we don't have that experience of of being right up in the life of the Trinity in perfect love and self-sacrifice Our experience of unity with the Trinity seems to be much less than what Jesus is praying for here. But let me say, it will not be so forever. 
So John himself says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, uh, any of you who've been here for a while will know this is one of my favourite verses in the Bible. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not been made known. So there's the now and the not yet. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Our problem is we don't see the not yet glory of Jesus. But we will. When Christ returns, we will see the divine glory of the Saviour. We're not yet sinlessly perfect, though we are already children of God. But one day we will be. Do you see? When we see Jesus, not with the eyes of faith, but with our physical eyes, we see the resurrected Christ in front of us in all his divine splendour, when we see what perfection looks like, when we see what beauty looks like, we will in an instant be changed and become like him. Do you see that? Jesus' prayer here in John 17 will be answered fully, finally, on that day. We shall be like him. And we'll be with him. Verse 24. That they may be where I am and see my glory. We will see him and we will be with him. We will leave behind the pale shadow of our now glory, great though it is. And we will take on on a glory that belongs to the children of God as we are taken up into the perfect life of the Trinity, not as gods, but as those who have been made acceptable to God by the Saviour, Jesus Christ. And now I think maybe we're ready to come back to Revelation 21. Just turn back towards the end of the Bible with me. And I I just want you to embrace the not yet glory of the church. Verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The old created order, verse 1, and the things that cause this world to be less than perfect, pain and suffering and misery and death, are both said to have passed away. They're gone. The, The now is past. The veiled glory is past. The sinful experience of the world is past and our imperfect experience of God is past. The last tear will dry and there will be no more. Not only will all things that cause us pain be gone, whether it's the black dog of depression or other mental health issues or physical pain or the loss of loved ones or a harsh word that caused us great internal pain, all our partings, all our endings, all separations are gone forever. Not only so, but there is no prospect of them ever returning. The very best days here are always just tinged, aren't they? You think of your very best day that you've ever had. They're always tinged slightly with the knowledge that they're coming to an end. That tomorrow you'll wake up and it's raining. But that will no longer be the case. We will experience great days knowing that the next day will be better. But perhaps more remarkable still will be the fact that God will redeem our memory. How much of our pain is actually to do with uh, loss and anguish about things that have happened in the past. But we'll look back on the things that hurt us now and Paul's words will stand. There will be 
not worth comparing to the glory that will be in us. Indeed, I do believe, seen from the perspective of eternity, we will look back on everything that's happened in this world and we will say, I can see God's good hand in it. I can see how God was using that hurt and it will become a cherished memory for us to the glory of God. There will be no pain of any kind. It's debated how much continuity there is between this world and the next. I don't propose to to solve that right now. But can we see, at the very least, our experience of the world will be completely different. We will be changed and the world will be changed so that our experience will be completely renewed. The limited glory of our earthly existence will, like Jesus, be utterly transformed. We will be glorious in the same way as the divine Son of God. Beautiful in every conceivable way. And now we come to verse 3, which I think is maybe the most precious part of these two chapters at the end of the Bible. God's dwelling is with his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the longing of the whole Bible. Every promise, every uh, prayer, every hope is fulfilled here. And what makes eternal life so glorious is not, I think, in the first place, that it is eternal, but that it is life. The perfect knowledge of God, the perfect experience of his love and grace, it flows out in his supply of protection, of food, of water, and and every good thing. If you read on in these chapters, every good thing, every bountiful provision is really just an outflow of God's grace to his people. But it is, first of all, all about our union with God that I think is barely imaginable to us here. My friends, this world is not everything. It is barely anything. We are not home. We're on the journey with a task to finish, to glorify God here for the salvation of the multitudes who are lost on our doorstep, who are not going to this final destination, who will not enjoy God's glory forever. But if we are going to get there, if we're going to keep going and growing, We need to fill our hearts and minds with our future home because Christ commands it, Colossians 1, because the truth brings unity and godliness so that we can better display God's glory because that enables us to hold out the light to the world and say, look, I know we're broken people, but it works, it's true, and we're going home. It will help us to face every trial that we face knowing that it's not worth comparing to the glory to come. And so it will give us joy in the midst of hard times. And I wish I had time to dwell on it, but it will, in the end, transform our death. Not looking back with regrets, but looking forward with eager expectations of running into the loving arms of our Saviour who prays for us. Uh, I'm going to recommend this book, uh, The Dawn of Heaven Breaks, if you're thinking, I'd love to spend some more time thinking about heaven. This is a collection of uh, Bible verses and passages, a collection of hymns and uh, poems and uh, various reflections by Christians of the past on how to fill your heart and mind with heaven. I'm going to read 
uh, a little passage from Richard Baxter. Some of you know I'm doing a PhD on Richard Baxter, so uh, if I can't uh, crowbar this one in, then frankly, uh, I've failed. Uh, Richard Baxter in 1650 wrote a book called The Saints Everlasting Rest, uh, which was a manual really on, on uh, filling your heart and mind with heaven. I'm not going to read all 500 pages of it, but let me read you just a few words about what it is to walk in heaven, to set your heart and mind on things above. Baxter would make it his habit to walk. He was the minister of Kidderminster, and he would uh, walk in the fields around the village uh, every night before sunset and just set his heart and mind on things above. And this is what he says about doing that. Go away into a private place at a convenient time and put aside other distractions. Look up towards heaven. Remember that your everlasting rest is there. Meditate on its wonder and reality. Rise from sense of this world to faith by comparing heavenly with earthly joys until you are transformed from a forgetful sinner and a lover of the world to an ardent lover of God. Meditate on heaven until you are changed from a fearful coward to a resolved Christian. Meditate until your unfruitful sadness is turned to joy. Meditate until your heart is weaned away from earth to heaven until you are taken up with the delight of walking with God. You will be as one who stands on the top of a high mountain looking down on the world below. Fields, woods, cities and towns will seem like little spots. In fact, that is how insignificant all earthly things will now appear. The most powerful rulers will seem as grasshoppers. The busy, contentious, covetous world will be like a heap of ants. You will not fear the threats of men. You will not be attracted by the honours of the world. Temptations will lose their strong appeal. Afflictions will seem less grievous. Every mercy will be more greatly appreciated. And by God's grace, it is for you to choose this morning whether you live this blessed life or not. Let's pray. Our Father, cause us to walk in these things, to grasp hold of them, uh, to uh, live the blessed life that Baxter uh, uh, calls us to, to see with the eyes of faith the day that is coming, and like the prodigal, to run home, to delight in it, to fill our hearts and minds with it, that we might consider the present sufferings not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. Our Father, do a wonderful work in us that we might be united and godly and that you might display in us your glory that many might come to know Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.